0: Welcome to another episode of the ID Podcast. My name is Mike, one of the co-hosts. This time, Grinder sat down with Dr. T, one of the first guests in our new series called Growing Up in Medicine. Grinder, tell us more about what Growing Up in Medicine is all about. Yeah, thanks, Mike. So Growing Up in Medicine is a
1: series brought to you by one of our team members, Omri. Uh, It is his brainchild, and he is very passionate about it, so I'm excited to be bringing the first episode to you guys today. Growing up in medicine is all about looking at the stories behind the CV. We have a lot of amazing doctors that we look up to in the medical profession, whether it be for their work in academia or in clinical work, but we don't ever really get to hear the story behind how they got to where they are now. Students look up to a lot of these doctors and think, if I don't have a straight pathway that's filled with wins and no losses, no side tracking and no detours, then I'm not gonna get to where I wanna get. But the truth is some of the amazing doctors we look up to and work with every single day, have had quite the roundabout way to get to where they are today. And they found amazing ways to combine some of their passions behind the scenes. So the goal of the series is to highlight all of those amazing pathways and encouraging students to take those shots, to continue working hard, whether they're a pre-med, in medicine, whether they're in residency or in fellowship, or whether they're even already staffed. There's always another evolution in your career that you could undertake. And if it's something that you're interested in, you should just go for it. So hopefully this series can bring you some more inspiration, and we get to learn a little bit more about these amazing doctors that we hear so much about.
0: That being said, our first guest today is Dr. T. You might know him as the Real Dr. T on Twitter. He's a nephrologist practicing in Texas, and he shares candid reflections on Twitter that resonate with those in medical school, residency, and beyond. Without further ado, we'll start with the interview. But before that, we'll feature one of his Twitter threads, Uh, which feature some of his candid writing.
1: I turn off the lights. These bulbs are old, not the newer LEDs. There is a lingering glow as the hot tungsten filaments gradually cool. I watch them as the room slowly goes dark, a lingering glow. And then, nothing. I am exhausted, but I can't sleep. A monster awaits. Morning comes far sooner than it has any right to, and before I know it, I'm back in the hospital. It's almost like my time away from this place was the dream, and the hospital is my waking reality. N95 on, surgical mask over it, face shield for when it's time. Armor up. You don't face the monster without armor, even if it's in short supply. You reuse what you have, and you find a way to make it work. And you don't face the monster alone the intensivist sits with me in the dictation room she is a seasoned veteran she leads naturally i've known her for five years now She is kind with a smile that brightens the room like when she shows me photos of her son's graduation or a funny meme but behind the kind smile is a steely resolve and above the mask her green eyes are twin pools of calm strength something is different today something is in the air quite literally The monster is on the prowl. The intensivist is more stressed than I can remember her being. Her smile is thin. Tubed several people so far. Floor people decompensating. ER is packed. Short staccato updates. We are in the dictation room together. A sort of fishbowl in the middle of the ICU with large glass windows. A nurse comes up and opens the door, her voice terse. Doc, we need you out here. Coming. She gets up quickly, grabs her stethoscope. I follow to see. The COVID rooms are sealed, negative pressure rooms, constantly keeping air flowing inwards. Outside the doors are sets of IV pumps so they can be adjusted without going inside. Face shields hang on makeshift hooks when not in use, names written on them in sharpie. One of the patients is not yet intubated, but experiencing that rapid decline that is a hallmark of the monster attacking aggressively. The breathing is becoming shallow, labored, despite multiple interventions. The ICU team prepares for another intubation, armor up. I am a nephrologist by training, but I am also board certified in internal medicine and I spend a fair amount of time practicing critical care medicine. I sit down at the table outside the room, back up, just in case things go sideways. The team preps rapidly, smoothly. To enter the monster's lair and perform an aerolizing procedure requires special precautions. The team, the doc, a respiratory therapist, and an ICU nurse, wears PAPR hoods. PAPR, powered air purifying respirator, running on batteries. They put them on in silence. Once the PAPR is active, you can't hear much while wearing it. The whirring of the fan drowns out a lot of sound. To make sure they can hear each other, the team dials into a special number and tapes their headphones to their ears so they don't dislodge accidentally. Sitting outside the room, I dial into the line on my phone and I can hear them too. They enter the room, the door sliding slightly with a hiss. Now they're in the monster's lair. You got everything? Yep. I'm going to move fast. Ready to position. On it. They talk to each other with the calm efficiency of a cohesive team of professionals at the peak of their expertise. They talk to each other with the calm efficiency of a cohesive team of professionals at the peak of their expertise. I can hear the patient through their mics. She's gasping with each labored breath. Oh my God. 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 Her voice is growing quieter, ominous. Sometimes when people sound quieter and calmer during respiratory issue, it's a sign of impending doom. You can't make noise if you can't breathe. The team moves rapidly. Automate, Yes. Sucks? In. The intensivist eyes are keenly focused as she intubates. She's a mother, and just a few weeks ago, she was proudly showing me her son's socially distanced graduation photos. As I watch her team save a life, I wonder how it could make people see. The risks that some have to take because the simple steps that others wouldn't. Afterwards, we are back in the dictation room. She reviews the chest x-ray to confirm the placement of the breathing tube. Looks good. She exhales deeply, rubbing her eyes. Then she looks up. You okay, Saeed? Did you eat something? Her empathy is her strength. Before either of us grab a bite to eat, another emergency page. Another patient beginning to succumb. The monster is raging like a wildfire. She opens a small packet of gummy bears and pops in a handful in her mouth. The sugar will help. Time to go. Armor up. The day passes in this way and turns to night. Not every life has been saved. People have died today. My fatigue is the kind that makes my soul feel shallower. I am hollow. The work isn't done, but it isn't ours anymore. Backup arrives in the form of an on-call team. Before we leave for the day, I tell the intensivist I'm going to write about her. She's exhausted, her face marked with indentations of her PPE, but she smiles. Oh, really? Be sure to tell your readers to wear their masks. I nod. You got it. Time to go home. On the elevator to the garage, I run to the patient's respiratory therapist. I tell her I'm going to write about the day. I ask her if she has any messages. She nods, and her smile is faint. Wear your fucking masks. Distance. None of this had to happen. None of it. As I drive home, I pass a restaurant less than a few blocks from the hospital. It's packed and I can see only a few masks as I drive by. The thought occurs to me. The monster isn't just in those hospital rooms. Everywhere. People risking other people's lives. I finally get home, get ready for bed. I turn off the lights. These bulbs are old, not the newer LEDs. There's a lingering glow as the hot tungsten filaments gradually cool. I watch them as the room slowly goes dark. A lingering glow. And then... Nothing. A monster awaits. Uh, Dr. T, would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself?
2: Sure. So uh, my name is Syed Tabatabai. I'm a nephrologist practicing in San Antonio, Texas. And uh, I uh, graduated from medical school in 2004. And I went to Albany Medical College, and then from 2004 to 2007, I did my internal medicine residency at uh, Tufts in uh, Boston. And then from there, I went on to do my fellowship in nephrology at Johns Hopkins from 2007 to 2009. And um, since then, I've been practicing. I practiced in multiple states uh, across America. I practiced in uh, Maryland, New York, and currently I'm in Texas. I primarily do clinical nephrology. I do some research also, and I also do some teaching. I uh, teach primarily uh, nurse practitioner students. Um, I have the occasional medical student shadow me, and I have an affiliation with the University of Texas at San Antonio, and I I lecture them periodically, the the nurse practitioner students. So that's kind of where I am right now. And uh, I guess we're gonna talk a little bit more about how I got here.
1: Absolutely, Um, I guess, I mean, many journeys start in different places. Um, But I'd love to hear kind of where your journey began for you. Where did this idea of practicing medicine one day start? And uh, what really started you on this journey?
2: So that's a, you know, that's a simple question (laughs) that has many different ways you can answer it and many different ways you can view it. And one of the themes I guess you're going to hear repeatedly from me as I talk to you guys is going to be the theme of uh, mentors and inspiration and mentorship and following in people's footsteps. And um, I was uh, uh, fortunate in that I had some fantastic role models in the field of medicine. Now, it wasn't my parents. My mom was actually, or she is actually a teacher. She's retired now. She's a school teacher. And my dad used to be an engineer. And he's actually retired now, too. So neither of them were physicians. But uh, my mom's father was a physician. And then my my dad had a couple of uh, sisters. and, And one of them was a physician also. So from a young age, I was sort of exposed to medicine early, and I got to see them practice medicine as uh, kind of, you know, as a kid, tangentially. Obviously, I didn't understand what was going on, but um, I remember playing with little toy stethoscopes and, and, and stuff like that. To me, what, what from a young age, what I liked was the relationship that they had with their patients. They were very <clears throat> empathic and caring individuals, and uh, to me, it was almost like I wanted to be like them, and then of course, what do they do? Well, they practice medicine, so I wanna do that. And that was kind of where it started. I sort of went away from it for a while. When I was, when I was a kid, when I was growing up, um, I liked medicine, I loved it. And then I went through the stretch where I just wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I liked science and I toyed around with the idea of, you know, physics or, or math or something like that. But I, I really liked biology. And of course, I started going into life sciences. And then you know my um, my parents encouraged it too. You know how parents are; they're like, "Why didn't you think about you know medical school or, or law <laughs> school?" Or you, you know how it is—you get a little Absolutely. bit of pressure. And so then I went back and I thought about it some more. I started volunteering at a hospital. Part of my part of the thing about my upbringing, if I can just jump for a second, is that um, I grew up all over the place. There was almost no time in my life where I was in the same school two years in a row. I repeatedly, basically until I got to college, every year we would move because my dad's job. He was a, a project startup manager. So anytime a project was getting off the ground, a big construction project, he would be there for a year or so, and then he'd go to another one, start that, up, et cetera. And so I didn't have a lot of continuity in my life. And I got a lot of exposure to different people in different cultures. And I realized that that's what I enjoyed, was I enjoyed this connecting with people, different kinds of people. And so when I started thinking about what I wanted to do, you know, my parents were talking about medicine or law or engineering, kind of all these solid careers. I started looking at it in terms of, you know, I wanted some real world experience. So I started volunteering at a hospital. And um, I think I wrote about that actually one of my Twitter threads. I realized kind of how narrow my understanding of medicine had been. Um, I sort of was thinking of medicine in terms of just the doctor, and a patient with an illness, and you deal with the illness, but it's so much more than that. I think medicine is 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 really life in a way. It's 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 kind of the full spectrum of life, kind of distilled down to its essence. And being a doctor isn't just treating an illness. It's kind of weaving a story. You know, it's kind of being part of the patient's story because you know patients come to you with a story. You know, once upon a time I was fine, and then this happened, and then you 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 become part of that. So um, as a kid, that that really appealed to me. I love storytelling. I've always loved writing. Um, One of the things I actually toyed with was being a movie director at one point, just from the storytelling side of things. But that's ultimately what drew me to medicine is this, this intersection of inspiration for mentors, appreciation for science, the biology of it, and appreciation for the stories we tell. And I think medicine was a perfect intersection of all those things.
1: Absolutely, and you talked about it really briefly. But you have some amazing Twitter threads and I think that's where me, Myself and Omri both have been exposed to you, you kind of earliest was through some of your amazing narratives that you tell. I guess, would you like to speak a little bit to when you started to express yourself through these Twitter narratives and what purpose and function they serve for you?
2: Oh, sure. Absolutely. And thank you, by the way. That's very kind of you. The writing for me... I've always enjoyed doing. You know, I mentioned creative pursuits, and to me, writing has been one of them. And, and ever since I was young, I loved writing. And my mom still has it. I think I wrote this like super elaborate comic book when I was little, and I kept adding to it for like years. And it became this incredible thing. And I thought I was being so original. And I think I called it like the Elementals or something. And then I found out like years later that Marvel already has like a property called that. And like all my original <laughs> completely bogus. But it was fun at the time, and I love I love writing and. I kept a journal when I was in um, college, and I kept a journal when I was a resident. And actually, I would advise you guys to do that. Even if you don't enjoy writing, or even if you're not into creative writing or or whatever, I would still journal some of, of what you're going through. Because I think the act of writing things down and thinking, it makes you think about them. And then it's an opportunity to reflect. And I think it's very important. Medical school is a bit of a a crucible and you're kind of being forged into something while you're in there. And sometimes when you're in the process, you don't realize what's happening, Mm -hmm. but being able to write it down and reflect on it and be aware of it and be aware of yourself and who you are and how you're changing as a person and your views, et cetera, I think is critical. Or maybe that's exaggerating. Maybe it's not critical, but I think it makes you a better physician. I think knowing yourself, but uh, anyway, so I always loved writing and then um, I actually wrote some blogs and a website I made a Twitter account a long time ago like maybe I think like 7 8 years ago just to kind of follow a few other Twitter accounts and I never really tweeted much um in fact I didn't tweet at all for for I think like 5 6 years and then I was in this practice here and I joined the practice in San Antonio and and you know we were in the middle of of getting our website updated and then we got like a social media consultant person and they they said you know you really got to put your presence out there Facebook and Twitter and <laughs> You know, that's how you're going to connect with people. And uh, so I resurrected my old Twitter account. And uh, I I named it The Real Dr. T, which um, at the time, I remember everyone's Twitter account was The Real Something, because I guess there were a lot of (laughs) fake something, So you had to be The Real, whatever, The Real Tom Cruise or whatever the heck, you know, everybody had a real uh, name. So that's where that came from. Plus, there were a bunch of Dr. T's. There's any place you go, I guarantee if you go to your hospital and say, Dr. T, (laughs) <laughs> there will be people known as Dr. T at your hospital. It's inevitable. Um, so that was just another kind of thing. I was like, all right, I'll be the real Dr. T. And I started writing a little bit. And my first few tweets, actually, if you if you go way back to the beginning when I wrote, they were just like purely medical information. Like my first tweet was like, drink more water or something like that. Like they were very kind of cut and dried, kidney focused. And that was the advice I was given. Um, was you know just kind of keep tweeting about kidney stuff and get kidney information and education out there. And I did that and I got extremely bored with it and it really wasn't engaging with people because no one really wants to hear that kind of stuff. And honestly, there are people who are a lot better at giving out information than I am who have much larger reach. So at some point, I think I just said, to heck with this, You know, this isn't working. I think for for a year, I only had like five followers and three were my family, my sister and my parents. And uh, two were like these bots that I didn't know who they were. (laughs) So I was like, you know what? I'm just going to do what I like doing. And what I like doing is writing. And I like writing narratives. And I like exploring writing. And Twitter is kind of a, a, a funky, cool writing medium because of the nature of it. It's so constricted, right? It's so constrained. So I was like, well, let me try writing in this medium and let's see what happens. It worked out pretty well. I started writing these narratives about all sorts of things. If you look at the topics, there, you know, I, I write about burnout. I write about aspirin toxicity. I write about, you know, urine sediments. I write about death and dying, and you know, all sorts of things. And it resonated with people. I think that the Twitter format actually made me a better writer because, you know, by na- by its very nature, you're forced to say more with less. And to me, that suited my style. My writing style is very simple. You know, I'm, I, I don't use a lot of big words. I don't. Try and make things too flowery. I I feel like the impact is greater the more tight it is, the the shorter it is. So a lot of my agonizing with Twitter is actually cutting things down. Most of my threads, which is a series of tweets, start off at like 20 tweets or 25 tweets or 30 tweets. And then I'm ruthlessly cutting them down and cutting them down and cutting them down to get them down to the core of what I'm trying to say. And so, um, I think people liked it. And then I also, again, I had good mentors. I had inspiration. Um, there's Dr. Kimberly Manning, who, uh, goes by at Grady doctor and, uh, she's fantastic. She writes these threads that are just, uh, amazing. And, uh, she was in, I saw what she was doing. And then uh, there were people like Mark Shapiro who are amplifiers and who have their own podcasts. And, you know, the world of medicine is so vast and expansive and, um, So people like them really opened my eyes. So again, uh, mentorship and inspiration was important.
1: Absolutely. And and I think you said it best, the world of medicine is so large and kind of finding where your niche or where your place in that field can seem a little bit daunting at at first, I can imagine. And we're kind of going through that stage right now. Um, And you you mentioned mentors. I'd just love to go back to kind of what drew you towards the kidney. I know that there's this great thread of yours that says that you hated the kidney in medical school and eventually you learned to love it. Uh, And it was through a great mentor. So I'd love to hear that story a little bit.
2: Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I'm I'm sure you guys, or I think maybe you guys can relate to this somewhat, is that you're, you know, when you want to get into medicine, your goals, your goals are always these kind of things that are dangling over your head, like just out of reach. So the first thing is like, I got to get into med school, you know, I want to get into med school. And you get into med school, and then you're like, oh, great, this is awesome. And then you're like, oh, crap, I've got to figure out what I want to do after this. And some people are blessed. They're like, you know, my whole life I've wanted to be an endovascular uh, surgeon, or my whole life I've wanted (laughs) thyroid reconstruction, whatever the heck, you know, some, but a lot of people think they know what they want to do, but don't really. And I think that's normal. I think that's actually the baseline. I think not being sure is a natural thing, because we're not all surgeons, we're all students. And so, I started off wanting to do trauma surgery. That was my focus. That's what I had shadowed people on. That's what I'd read about. And that's what I was psyched to be. It just, to me, it sounded, you know, like it was going to be high intensity and it was going to be, you know, exciting and it would use, I'd get to think on my feet and all this stuff. And um, the more I I sort of looked into that as I was in, in med school, my mentor was a trauma surgeon. Mm-hmm. Um, the more I sort of shadowed and, and did more of that, you know, I came to the realization, I was like, man, I don't know if I have the passion for this to do this as, as for the rest of my life. And with those realizations comes this deep depression and this kind of feeling of being untethered where the clock's ticking and you've got to figure out what you want to do. <laughs> right. And there's, there's so many answers that seem like they might be right and you're not sure. So again, I go back to the concept of mentor. So the trauma surgeon who mentored me was a great guy. And uh, he is a great guy. I I always talk about people like they've died. They're really not. I'm not talking about any dead people. Just so you know, everyone's alive. Um, His name is Dr. Dr. Hisham. And he's a fantastic surgeon. You know, I was uh, talking to him. And uh, he sort of presented it to me like, you know, just work backwards. As you make your way through med school, work backwards in terms of as you're experiencing things, what do you not like <laughs> and kind of taper your focus that way and kind of project things ahead. You know, don't worry so much about what people are telling you. Don't worry so much about, you know, what you're thinking about the job market and kind of that kind of stuff. Just look at the experience Just allow yourself to fully be in the moment and experience these things as much as possible and then kind of work, work your way back. And what makes this infinitely easier is if you know who you are. And again, I go back to that idea of keeping a journal and reflecting. It's a lot easier to figure out what you want to do with your life if you know what your life means to you and what your goals are. So um, he gave me this advice, and he was great. About, I thought he was going to be so mad about me not wanting to do trauma surgery for some weird reason. That seems silly. But I was like, oh, man, he's going to yell at me. When you're a <laughs> student, that's your number one concern, right? right. Uh, so and so's going to yell at me. Something bad. <laughs> the sky's going to fall. He actually knew before I even said anything. He's like, trauma surgery is not really for you, is it? And I was like, no, it's not. Then I was kind of in this untethered phase, and I was going through and working backwards. As I went through my rotations, I was like, I love kids, but pediatrics, I don't know. You know, I can't deal with parents. You know, psychiatry, I wasn't that good at it. You know, it it wasn't what I wanted to do. Uh, Surgery, I didn't have the passion. So I started to gravitate towards internal medicine just by... Process of exclusion and within internal medicine, I was like, man, I don't know. Do I want to specialize or not? And I hated nephrology uh, from dating. I think all med students do. I think if you have a student who likes nephrology, there's got to either you have the greatest teachers in the world or that they're just nerds. They're just nerds. <laughs> but uh, I'm just kidding. I'm sure It's okay to like nephrology. I'm not. <laughs> But uh, it's a pretty universally uh, uh rotation of students just because of physiology is so, um, you know, complex. But I ended up in a nephrology rotation, which I did not select. I actually wanted a different rotation, and I did get that one. I ended up in nephrology. And then I write about this in my thread is that I just had a fantastic mentor, and I had um, – somebody who allowed me to look past my mental block towards nephrology and stop focusing on formulas and numbers and start seeing kind of the exquisite beauty and the magic of nephrology, which is the fact that your kidneys are keeping you balanced 24/7 and the edge of a knife blade in terms of these concentrations and mill equivalents per liter that are so fine that, you know, if you go up or down by 10 points, it's fatal, you know, it's just this incredible dance of balance and homeostasis and the kidney's doing this all without a brain you know no one there's no, the kidney's not thinking about these these are loops feedback loops that have been set up and they're self-regulating and auto-regulating and it would just blew my mind you know i just start it's like that moment in the matrix you know where neo's looking down the hallway and suddenly he can see all like the green lines of code going up and down that's what it felt like then suddenly the formula started to make sense you know as you start to think about what's the kidney trying to do in this situation And I just got so turned on to it, and then he gave me a consult to do on my own, which as a med student, you know, you never, never get to do. You're just so supervised. But I did the consult, and I presented it to him, and he said, yeah, that's perfect. I wouldn't change a thing. And I was hooked at that moment. I was like, oh, my God, this is amazing. And then uh, I noticed that any other rotation I did, all my focus was always on the kidneys. And I wasn't even thinking about it that hard. You know, I was trying to focus on cardiology, but I was like, meh. You know, I'm looking at that creatinine, I don't know, you know, or like I was doing surgery and, you know, I like, oh man, they haven't peed in the last eight hours. And everyone's like, are you serious? You know, we're dealing with this massive fracture. I'm like, yeah, but there's no urine output. So at that point, I think I was pretty well sold on it. And this process took several years. I mean, it wasn't until I was probably late in my third year, middle of my fourth year that I knew that I wanted nephrology. Fortunately, by third year, I knew I was focused on internal medicine. And then um, I didn't finally commit 100% to nephrology until I was through my first year of residency. I think at that point, it was pretty much for me, it was set in stone.
1: Right. And I'm sure you've had some amazing stories on the wards uh, since you kind of finished your residency and continue working in this area that you're clearly very passionate about. But I also know that with what with no matter what specialty you kind of end up going with, there are going to be some tough aspects some days that aren't as easy, some days a little bit more tough where you're faced with some situations that really make you stop and think. Um, right. I'd love to hear some stories maybe, or, or maybe just some times that you've spent um, in, in medicine that have been a little bit more difficult than the easier days.
2: Sure. And actually, let me just uh, <clears throat> kind of in, in line with what you're saying, let me just backtrack for one second. My story is not the only story. It's not the only path. It's not unique. There are lots of different ways to get to what you want to do. And if you get through all of med school and you still don't know, that's okay. I have friends of mine, colleagues that I went to med school with, who have switched careers completely. And that's okay to do. When I say something set in stone, it's never really set in stone. I have a friend of mine who went to, did a residency, um, went to orthopedic surgery, and now is practicing practicing as a psychiatrist. So you know, these kind of, these kind of choices that we make, there's an illusion that they're forever. And they're really not. I mean, part of it is, is finding out more about yourself and uh, learning what, what you're a match for or not. So there's nothing wrong with not knowing and not knowing is inherently stressful, but I think, accepting that it's okay not to know and sort of letting, um, you know, there's a Zen saying, a muddy water, let stand, becomes clear. Sometimes right. letting things settle and, and finding your way I think is, is, is okay. So I just wanted to throw that in there that, you know, I present it like you had to know what you were doing by this point. But the truth is at no point do you absolutely necessarily have to know. Now you may have to select something or make a choice, but, you know, no one is going to fault you for changing your mind or anything like that. Now, in terms of, of of difficult things and and, and difficult uh, moments, I think you're you're really not practicing medicine if you're uh, if you're coasting through and you're and you're not having any sort of difficulty. I think the obstacles in our path and the, and the, the the mistakes we make are really what what hone us into into better clinicians. i I would say that I've learned way more from the mistakes I've made than all the times things have gone 100% smoothly. And, you know, there's this saying in medicine, and as far as when it comes to procedures, you never really know a procedure until you have your complication, your first complication, right? So uh, I think uh, adversity is part of the journey, and it really should be welcome. Um, I think adversity is is what uh, shapes us. And from the very beginning, actually, even in medical school, one of the first adversities to overcome is that imposter syndrome. Which kind of dogs you every step of your training, I think. And uh, if it doesn't, then great, you're blessed. I don't know how you do it, but <laughs> I think part of the process is, is, you know, the the it's almost like a funnel. You know, things through your whole life. You now you're starting to get more and more into a group of people that's more and more and more selected. And uh, naturally, now you're in a group of, uh, you know, essentially people who are highly trained, who are highly educated, and it's natural to wonder, you know, am I the only one who doesn't know what's going on right now? That's probably one of the first thresholds to overcome is, is um, that imposter syndrome. For me, one of the things that was helpful, which is kind of unique in my background, was all the moving I did when I was younger. Once you're, you've been the new kid in school, there's nothing that can ever scare you again in your life. (laughs) No one will ever be meaner than a bunch of sixth graders, right? (laughs) So I was so used to being the new kid that I think for me, that imposter syndrome, um, it it would rear its head down then, but I was pretty good at knowing myself and knowing my limits and knowing how I was doing it relative to everybody else and feeling comfortable in my own skin. But yeah, even nowadays, even like I've been in private practice now for – Oh, boy. Uh, 11 years. And there are still days sometimes where I'm like, man, uh, you know, because the buck stops with me, right? I'm, I'm the subspecialist. <laughs> right. Like, kidney problem. I can't turn around and be like, you should see that guy. Um, <laughs> yeah, so there are times sometimes where I get into an issue that's that's so complicated, the answer is not clear. And I think uh, imposter syndrome is, is something that never really goes away. But I think it uh, eventually you just learn to understand what you're really feeling because the truth is you're not an imposter right Right. the fundamental truth is you're not you're you are there because you earned it you're there because you work for it you're there because you're meant to be there so the, the really the key to imposter syndrome is understanding that it's not it's not a real I mean it's it's sort of a it's a false truth or it's not the, the The syndrome itself is is uh based on something that's just not true, and I think once right. you get past that you're able to deal with it, but yeah, you know adversity is is what shapes us. I think those of us who have a straight shot path that's completely smooth with no adversity i don't know that that's the kind of physician I want to be or I want to take care of me because not because they're not knowledgeable but because I think the Natural course of life is one of of adversity and obstacles. You know, I I think very few people live lives that are that are completely smooth in terms of their paths. You know, it's not like I ever aced every exam I took. You know, there were exams I took in med school where I was like, oh man, I thought I did way better than that. What the heck happened? You know, and, <laughs> and there were some exams where you know I was sweating and and I was like, man, you know, and there goes imposter syndrome again, right? But I think that that's that's okay and. That, again, there are very few of us who are going to ace every exam. The key thing, though, and again, this is repeated theme. I, I do this in my writing, in my Twitter threads. <laughs> I repeat themes. If you ever read my threads, almost always one or two of them are repeated tweets that are almost word for word repeated. And that's kind of where the truth is. And and this idea of knowing yourself. Adversity is a great tool for insight. Adversity is, is kind of... Um, it's a lens, and if you focus it just right, mm-hmm. focus it inward, you learn more about yourself and you grow. And every time you stumble, that's an opportunity to to, to pick yourself up and get stronger with it. Mm-hmm. And uh, not all adversity is something you overcome on your own. There's not, there's no shame in asking for help. There's no shame in acknowledging that you're struggling. And you know, this isn't something that you have to just walk this path by yourself. You're walking it with a whole bunch of classmates. You're walking it with mentors who walked it before you. One of the things we don't do that well in medicine is reach out, uh, reach out for ourselves and reach out to each other. So I think that's something we need to just as a, as a culture, we we have traditionally been very hierarchy based and you kind of, you know, I went through hell, so you're going to go through hell too. And that's the way it's always been kind of mentality. And I don't think that helps anybody. So that's something that we have to overcome together, but. Yeah, I think that's uh, a part of it.
1: Absolutely. Um, I think you touched on a lot of these things about putting yourself into places where, you know, you might be a little bit less knowledgeable, some places where you're taking risks, and you're kind of forcing some adversity onto yourself. And I know that you wear a lot of hats yourself as well outside of just medicine. I'm wondering if, uh, what sort of things are you up to right now? What places have you been kind of pushing yourself to grow and explore some new areas of yourself? I know you do a lot of writing on Twitter, but you also do a lot of writing outside of Twitter. Uh, right. Would you like to talk a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, sure. And, and uh, that's a great point that you bring up. I think it's important to push your, your limits and your boundaries a little bit. I'm a great example. I hated nephrology, right? If I had stuck to my comfort zone, I would have never taken that rotation. And who knows what I, I would be doing. Um, hopefully still medicine, but who knows, you know, what what specialty or what, you know, how how happy I'd be or what my mindset would be. Nephrology was outside my comfort zone. You know, writing for other people to read was outside my comfort zone. I always wrote journals for myself. I never wrote stuff that other people could read. I mean, I did write some magazine articles and reviews and stuff like that, but not this kind of intimate personal stuff. And Mm -hmm. uh, I think pushing yourself to go outside your comfort zone is where adversity happens. It's where growth happens. And um, you're absolutely right. And that's important do the rotations that you know that are things you like doing or things you want to do and then do Mm -hmm. some rotations that are things you would never do in a million years. Try stuff that, and this is the opportunity in your life. This is med school. This is, you know, you don't think of it. We're kind of doctors. We're very kind of conservative when it comes to risk taking and that's fine when you're dealing with a patient and whatnot, but for yourself, it's okay for there to be some risk in this endeavor because by putting yourself at risk, you make yourself vulnerable. And when you're vulnerable, that's when I think you're, you're open to growth. I think when you're feeling confident and fully armored and you're a tank and you're invulnerable, I don't think that person is doing a lot of growing. So right. um, that's, that's, that's true. And so right now what I'm doing, a big part of what I do as a nephrologist is dealing with end of life because a lot of my patients, you know, advanced kidney failure are, are older patients. And uh, one of the things that was tough for me as I'm fairly young, you know, I was the youngest member of my med school class. I was 19 when I started med school. And, um, you know, it was always tough for me to sit down with, with patients who might be, you know, 50, 60 years older than me, and have a heart to heart about the end of life, you know, like, who am I to talk to them about, you know, the inevitability of something or the depth and breadth of life, you know, it was always a difficult conversation. And so one of the things I did to push myself outside that comfort zone, was I gravitated towards palliative care and I said, okay, you know, this is uncomfortable for me. I'm going to keep having these discussions, and I'm going to learn from people who do this, and, um, you know, I made friends with some folks in the palliative care side of medicine, and I actually did work as a palliative care director for a a hospice company for about three years, Mm
0: -hmm. and,
2: um, you know, put myself in this position to take care of these patients and understand what it meant and it was extremely gratifying, It was one of the best things I've ever done. Um, unfortunately, I wasn't able to keep doing it just because of workload issues, but that's a good example of something where I was—I I, I took a chance based on the deep discomfort I had, and I feel like it bettered me for it.
1: Absolutely. And you talked about the value of reflective practice for physicians and medical students as well who are earlier on in their training. Um, I'm curious if you've used any of these reflective uh, practices with your patients at all, uh, especially ones that are kind of at the end of life that you, you were just talking about.
2: One of the things that I've noticed about myself the longer I've practiced is uh, when I started out, you know, when I was fresh out of med school and I was a resident, a lot of my patient encounters were about me transmitting information to the patient. I was like, all right, here's my plan. I'm going to go in there. We're going to talk about this. We're going to talk about this. And we're going to talk about this. And we're going to implement this plan, then we're going to go. But the longer I've practiced medicine, the more my plan and my interaction with patients is, okay, I'm going to listen. I'm going to start off listening about this. Then I'll talk a little bit. Then we'll listen about this. And I think that reflection, it's, you know, one of the big issues in medicine is is we're constantly in this time crunch, right? right now you have the luxury and i encourage you to utilize this luxury no one has more time to spend with the patients and medical students right you're going to have fewer patients you'll have fewer responsibilities you'll have more time to get to know your patients this is invaluable invaluable luxury and utilize it you know get to know people get to know human beings get to know the experience of being sick although of course everyone's experience is unique but get to know what it's like to have to get blood draws and to be in a hospital and and to do all this kind of, um, you know, to go through this experience as much as you can. Reflecting with patients, I, I, you know, I think patients naturally want to connect with their physicians. I think they want the person they go to when they're sick to be somebody that they can empathize with. I mean, obviously they want people to have answers uh, Mm -hmm. and to be able to help them, but I think they also want to be able to see this person as a human being and not just a, dispensary or whatever. So my experience, patients are more than happy to reflect. Everybody's again everybody's different. it's not going to work with everybody, but a lot of people, if you just listen to them, they'll they'll reflect with you. And uh they'll tell you, you know, important things that you wouldn't always get. So yeah, I think that's definitely very important.
1: Absolutely. Well thank you so much for sharing that. I think there's a lot that we can take away from everything that you shared today. Um, I'm wondering just really quickly, this on a little bit of a lighter note here. Um, I'd love to know how your rock Iggy is doing. Uh, we, have, we, <laughs> we haven't seen any tweets oh from Iggy gosh. in the past Iggy, couple days, and I'm a little bit worried.
2: Yeah, Iggy is sort of, oh, my, what a character. I'll tell you, you know, Iggy has been not handling quarantine that well, I got to say. Um, <laughs> I would have thought a rock would have been low maintenance in quarantine, but that guy, I just, like right now, he's over there on the countertop. He's giving me this look. Uh, it's just it's been rough on Iggy and I've been encouraging to communicate you know get out there get his message out there but you know sometimes rocks they just kind of they're not the best communicators and he's he's in this phase where he's kind of shut down a little bit so we'll see I I think we'll see more of Iggy in the future but I'll let him know you guys asked about him Iggy they're asking about you right now
1: (laughs) there you go so I'll take some of the blame there maybe we should have been extended invite to Iggy himself
2: well he's saying thank you (laughs) And, you know, he'll he'll do what he can. What can I tell you?
1: He's it's, That's awesome. Yeah. That is so great. Well, thank you so much for all your time today. Uh, maybe if you have some final closing thoughts for all of our listeners, uh, just keeping in mind that a whole, a whole bunch of them are medical students, so they'd love to get some wisdom from you, some parting words. Um, if there's anything you'd like to share with our audience before we close off the interview.
2: Oh, my gosh. That is uh... – <laughs> what to choose. There's so much stuff I'd like to say to you guys um, because I remember what it was like to be there. You know? You're know, you going to be okay. You're going to be okay. This process will cause you to question why you're doing it. It'll cause you to question if you're right for it. It'll cause you to question your future in it. But the truth is you've um, embarked on a remarkable journey and the journey is is the destination i know it's cheesy but the journey let accept the journey let it shape you it's okay to be vulnerable it's okay not to know it's going to be all right and i think i honestly think the future of medicine is in great hands you know all the students i interact with are just fantastic and i think you guys are are going to carry the torch and do it better than we did you know obviously we have a lot of problems in medicine a lot of systemic problems that people are finally talking about for the first time I think you guys have an unparalleled opportunity to change the way we've done things for a long time. So don't be afraid to seize that opportunity and don't be afraid to get uncomfortable.
1: Thank you so much for those words. Um, And I'd also like to say sometimes the most important sayings are cheesy for a great reason. And that's because there's some inherent truth in them. Um, And I think that your words ring absolutely true with all of our listeners. So thank you so much, Dr. T
2: sure no problem my pleasure and you know i'd be happy to talk to you guys again or if uh, anyone needs to reach out to me my my twitter account um, at the real dr t i respond to all messages um unless you're a bot in which case i'll still respond it won't be nice so feel free to reach out
1: awesome and we'll make sure to include that information as well in the show notes below as well as on our website so please do connect with dr t at the real dr t on twitter
2: all right thanks so much guys
0: And welcome back to the studio. My name is Mike, one of the co-hosts of the iD podcast. You've just listened to Dr. T, also known as the real Dr. T on Twitter, who shares his candid experiences as a nephrologist in Texas, using Twitter as a medium to convey um, his narratives and deep reflection that he engages in. I think what really stood out to me from the interview is how his Twitter narratives are not only a way for him to reach a broad audience, of medical professionals and, and also the non-medical community on Twitter, um, but also kind of how he emphasizes deliberate reflective practice as a tool that medical students can use now, um, and I'm certainly reflecting now, uh, because medical education is so um, broad and involves so many unique experiences. Um, And so I think it's very valuable message for all of our listeners um, to kind of speak to the importance of... Reflection and how important that is, especially since Dr. T also highlighted in his interview um, the opportunities where he took a chance based on deep discomfort. Uh, he said something like, Where adversity happens is where growth happens. And I thought that was a very powerful quote that resonated with me searching for areas of weakness and wanting to find opportunities to improve on them and possibly find a new area of interest like palliative care in his journey as a physician. What did you think of the interview, Grinder? Yeah, thanks for sharing
1: your thoughts, Mike. I thought that Dr. T was an amazingly eloquent and great speaker. It was a pleasure to get to talk to him for the time that we did. Um, his, His Twitter threads continue to inspire, I think, thousands of people around the world. And just being able to highlight that for a second, it's amazing that that resource exists and it's out there. And I think that even for some of us who don't write some of our own narratives down and get to reflect, just getting to experience those Twitter threads allows a a process of reflection to a certain extent as well. Um, I've definitely found myself connecting to some of the thoughts that he shared on there. So thank you so much for putting into words some of the thoughts that I've been unable to put into words thus far. Um, I also would just like to reflect exactly what you said, Mike. I think the role of reflection in medicine is a very important one. And it's one that's taking on continued importance in residencies and throughout medical school as well. I think more and more schools are starting to understand that, um, sharing these narratives and talking about our experiences is an, is an amazing way to internalize those experiences, learn from them, grow from them, and also just not feel so burnt out having to bottle up those emotions and bottle up the thoughts that you might have as someone going through uh, medical practice. And so I'd just like to say thank you to Dr. T for showing all of us that combining your artistic aspirations with medicine is an absolutely doable task and one that more people may undertake because of his work. So thank you to Dr. T. Uh, And I'd also just like to say uh, the entire ID podcast team is thinking about him right now. He's continuing to do some amazing work in San Antonio. Uh, We know that his hospital has been particularly heavy hit in terms of COVID. And so we would just like to say that your patients appreciate all the hard work that you do Dr. T and our team here is definitely thinking about you every single day. Um, So continue to go out there and being an inspiration. We look forward to hearing about your experiences on Twitter. And in any way that we can be supportive, we would love to, to find a time to sit down and do that. Uh, so thank you so much. This has been The ID Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. You can follow us once again at Twitter or on Facebook or on Instagram at The ID Podcast. You can find some of our other recent episodes as well, anywhere that you stream podcasts. If you'd like to learn more about Dr. T and his amazing Twitter threads, you can follow him at the Real Doctor T. Thank you so much to the team without whom this episode would not be possible. Omri was our episode director and research team, as well as myself. On production, we had Isabella, as well as on music. And thank you to our hosts, Mike and myself. This has been the ID Podcast, where we feature stories about medicine and the people behind them. Join us next time for another engaging episode. Thank you so much for listening.